This is episode number three with three-time Olympian and 10,000-meter Olympic bronze medalist, American record holder, bronze medalist at the 2011 World Cross-Country Championships, second-place finisher at the 2010 New York City Marathon, and New York Times best-selling author, Shalane Flanagan. out of breath after all that. As you heard, my guest today is a rock star. Ms. Shalane Flanagan is one of the best American distance runners to have ever lived, and she's also one of the fastest in the world. A bronze medalist at the 2008 Olympics in the 10,000 meters, she's also set the American 10K record on the track that same year and currently holds the 10K and 15K American road records. Her personal best time of 2.21.14 is the second fastest time in the marathon by an American woman ever. Shalane was also the first American across the line at the 2016 Rio Olympics in sixth place overall, leading the strongest American field in the women's marathon ever put together with all three runners finishing in the top 10. But she's not just a runner. She's also co-author of Run Fast, Eat Slow with Elise Kopecki which was a New York Times bestseller on not one, but two lists, sports and fitness and food and diet. Please enjoy my conversation with Shalane Flanagan. All right, Shalane, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jason. So we were practically neighbors growing up. Uh, I actually went to Lexington High School, and you grew up in Marblehead, or I really should say Marblehead. <laughs> wow, yeah, I didn't know that. That's very cool. Yes. Now, do you have a Boston accent? Does it... Yeah, no, I wish. You no, wish. I wish. <laughs> no, somehow I escaped it. I don't know how I got protected being uh, on a little peninsula in Marblehead. For some reason, I just didn't get that nice, thick Bostonian accent. And it was ironic as neither do my parents really. Just a few occasional words here and there, but no, no thick Boston accent. I wish though. <laughs> <laughs> Not even after a couple glasses of wine. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so. We grew up in similar areas outside of Boston, and i got to ask, do you have any favorite Boston area uh, runs that, that you seem to come back to time and time again? Um, geez. Yeah, you know, in high school, I loved, um, well, I loved competing in Franklin Park. That was always a highlight. Um, so I loved, um, you know, like the trails and the cross-country course at Franklin. Um, and then I loved to go from my town, Marblehead, out to Nahant along the ocean and back. Uh, I would say that those are two of my favorites. And then now as an adult, um, training on the Boston Marathon course has certainly been one of my favorite places to train. So, um, yeah, there's great running um, all over New England. And, um, yeah, and, you know, it's funny how I just discover new places all the time. Um, when I was at an event for, like, Runner's World, I discovered um, – you know, an awesome path uh, just right next to BC, the reservoir area, and I've never been there before. So um, there's always something to discover when you're in Boston. Yeah, I've actually, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's uh, a small reservoir. It might be like a mile and a half around. And yeah, I think it's about like 3K. Yeah. Yeah. And was this, uh, this is actually, we actually met briefly in 2014 at the Runner's World Half and Festival. And I'm wondering yeah. if, 
if that was when you discovered that little It was. Area. I'd never never seen really BC. Uh, my grandfather went there, but, you know, growing up in Marblehead, I didn't have any, really a great reason to go down to BC or anything. So that was the first time having um, kind of discovered that reservoir area and the running around um, BC. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny that you've, <laughs> you've run there before. One of my yeah. one of my good friends is actually uh, used to live right around there and uh, would run there every day. And it's a great place for workouts. It's pretty pretty clear trail for uh, yeah. you know spinning the legs a little bit. Um, but let's switch gears a little bit. You've had you've had a crazy couple months. <laughs> mm-hmm. You uh, sixth place at the Olympic marathon in Rio. Congratulations. Thank you. You set the American record in the road 10K, and your book, Run Fast, Eat Slow, was not just published recently, but went on to become a New York Times bestseller. So I, I know the last three months might not exactly be representative of a typical schedule for you, but I, I'm always curious about people's kind of daily routines. On a, on a more normal day, when you're not uh, traveling for your book or for the Olympics, what does the first hour of Shalane Flanagan's day look like? Um, well, right now, if you were to to take it, uh, I I wake up about six six thirty, and for the first hour, I'm consuming um, probably usually about two cups of coffee, <laughs> and um, preparing lunches for. Um, I have two two seventeen year old twin girls who are living uh, with my husband and I. We're foster parents. So I'm usually preparing uh, lunches for school for the day and uh, kind of catching up on emails as I'm doing that and drinking my coffee. So that's basically what my first hour looks like. Wow, I had no idea that you and your husband were acting as foster parents right now. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's been it's been a fun experience. We definitely really enjoy the girls and um, just really good kids. So, yeah, it's been a great experience. Oh, and are they are they going to a local high school near you? Yeah, they are. They go to their seniors in high school, and they're they go to a high school that's only like three miles from our house. Okay. Um, so now, what if let let's maybe rewind a couple months, and and let's say it's um, May or June. You're kind of gearing up for the Olympics. It does a, does your morning look different in that kind of a scenario as opposed to as opposed to right now? Actually, I'm pretty routine person. Whether I'm, you know, preparing for the Olympic marathon and versus now, um, I'm just like a morning person. I think it's the best part of the day. So regardless of whether I have training or not, I enjoy getting up early, usually before anyone in the house. So um, all my teammates can attest when we're like at altitude. I'm usually the first one up, making the coffee and kind of getting things going. So um, it's pretty much just similar, maybe a little bit more relaxing, just because I don't have. Um, teenagers to take care of in the morning and get them breakfast and stuff, but uh, usually it's just the same thing with the coffee and making some breakfast and responding to emails and kind of mapping out and planning what the training for the day is going to look like. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned coffee three or four times now. You seem to be quite the <laughs> coffee fanatic. I love it. Yes. Um, what does what a typical breakfast for you look like? Um, I try to add a little variety, but honestly, it's either one, you know, usually like two two things that I probably reach for. It's um, my oatmeal that I have in my cookbook. I call it but it applies to basically any hard workout. Um, I'll be having my oatmeal. And then on non-workout days, sometimes I'll want something a little different. Um, so 
so as not to get too tired of it. <laughs> I'll have uh, either some eggs um, with uh, muffins from a superhero muffin from my cookbook or our sweet potato breakfast cookies. So I tend to eat a lot of the foods that are from my cookbook um, just because I know they're healthy and satiating and will fill me and keep me, you know, um, full for quite a while. It's always the goal is to get to, to noon without having to have to, you know, get what runners call hangry. I try not to get too overly, um, you know, anxious and just starving by the time lunchtime rolls around. So I have a, a decent-sized breakfast. And if I can't have a big breakfast, then I always have, like, a smoothie, my can't-beat-me smoothie um, for right after the run to tide me over. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, you're making me hungry. So <laughs> let's talk more about training. And um, I... I watched a clip of a training session that you had where you were doing a circuit. And so it was a series of drills and strength exercises and some mobility work combined with running. And uh, one of the big lessons that, that I always try to um, tell my runners is that good runners don't just run. You know, there's many other aspects to good training. And so can you describe some of your, uh, some of your ancillary work or, or your prehab routine and, and maybe talk about how that might have changed over the years? Yeah, I think the video you're referring to is, I think, from, like, 2008. Um, And I was actually under a different coach, or maybe it was 2007, 2008. I was under a different coach at the time, and um, he taught me a lot of great um, just tools to have to um, with my ancillary work and just being a good, strong athlete, not just a runner, but just a good athlete. So he had me do a lot of circuits like that, and um, I've carried a lot of that over, but I've implemented it in just different ways because now I – now I run more. I run probably twice as much as I did then. So the running is emphasized, and then that supplemental work is really key and essential, but it kind of fits around my running, whereas uh, back then that was like a major component of my program. So now I, I'm in the gym about three times a week, and it's still the same kind of stuff with the hurdle mobility and some weight program and um, some dynamic flexibility and all that kind of stuff. I've been really fortunate not to have really any significant injuries other than just really one, and it was kind of a a freak um, injury. So um, I don't, you know, there's a lot of athletes out there that have to do a lot of prehab and rehab and all that kind of stuff, and I've been fortunate that I don't have to do a lot of that, but I try not to neglect anything. I think women tend to just have weak glutes and weak hips. I actually think a lot of runners have that problem, but women more so. So I'm very attentive to those areas, knowing that that's a weakness. And once you allow your glutes and your hip flexors to become weak, that creates a lot of problems. So that's definitely a focus of mine, along with, like, my core being very strong. So, um, yeah, I'm in the gym about three times a week. And then sometimes during the season I actually get in the pool quite a bit and just do some aqua jogging and some swimming just to kind of loosen up the muscles. And I believe – kind of that hydrotherapy can be very therapeutic to the muscles. Um, so, you know, for example, this week I'll be in the gym three times um, doing some of my core strengthening, and then I'll also I'll have been in the pool three times this week as well between 30 and 40 minutes just doing light, you know, aqua jogging and swimming. I remember doing pool running in college during an entire week when I was injured, and uh, uh, pool running an hour and a half or two hours every day is one thing, which was I was what I was doing. But getting in 30 minutes a couple times a week, I've done that too. And I can personally attest to how awesome you feel 
after a little bit of time in the pool, especially after some of your harder days. So I think that's great. And, uh, you know, for our listeners, if, if, that, if the pool is available to you and you can get in there for, I would say, even 20 minutes of pool running can have a really nice recovery benefit for uh, runners who are, are training at a, at a higher level. Um, and then my other question, Shalene, was, you know, you mentioned working out at the gym three times a week. Uh, now, you're running every day. What, what are you doing after your runs, if anything, uh, on the days that you're not going to the gym? Yeah, on the days I'm not going to the gym, um, I'm usually just stretching and kind of rolling out with a foam roller, or I have my roll recovery, which is an awesome tool. Um, so I use that, or I'll be seeing my massage therapist to kind of make sure that the muscles stay loose and healthy. Yeah, it's, it's great that you don't have to worry too much about, um, you know, injuries with, you know, with your injury history. That must be kind of a a little bit of a relief for you. Now, I'm curious, um, you said your mileage doubled uh, from, you know, what you did maybe eight years ago to what you're doing today. What was it back then, and what kind of mileage are you running uh, typically now? Yeah, back then I was running about 70 miles a week, and now when I'm building up for a marathon, I'm running about like 120. So not quite doubling, but pretty close. Um, and that's just because I'm tackling the longer distance of the marathon and the half marathon. So um, kind of a, just a necessary evil to uh, to prepare myself for the distance that I want to be good at. So it was an adjustment, and at first, you know, it was kind of a little rough transition, but once my body adapted and um, kind of got over a hump, um, I feel like I've become a really strong runner because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I'm a little curious when, when you were transitioning to that high-level mileage, um, you know, like, what did, what did that feel like on a day-to-day basis? Because I know, you know, for, <laughs> for recreational runners, that even 70 miles a week seems like uh, something otherworldly. So I'm curious, like, what, what does 120 miles feel like on a day-to-day basis? Well, because it's my job, I can do everything to, like, accommodate the 120-mile weeks. You know, when you're working a full-time job and you're squeezing runs in before work or after work, um, you know, 70 miles feels probably similar to what 120 feels like just because you're so active in other parts of your life. So that being said, um, when I'm running 120 miles a week, it's a lot of uh, sleeping and a lot of laying around in between. It's all about recovery and getting ready for the next run because it's basically doubling almost every single day. So run in the morning and run in the evening. Um, so I'm really fortunate that I can just dedicate full time to running that kind of mileage. Um, I can't say that I would ever be able to probably do that if I had a full-time job as well. So, um, But it, it leaves you very tired. I always find that the first few weeks at the high mileage is the worst, and then you kind of get used to it and your body adapts and your energy levels kind of come back to you. But Initially, it's very tiring, and I find that I'm just kind of surviving and not really thriving as a person. But um, eventually, I, I adapt and I, I start to thrive. Would that would that take a long time, or is it like two weeks in and you start to feel a little better, or is it like yeah, four it's or about like weeks three, in? like three weeks usually, three to, maybe three to four. Sometimes it just depends. Sometimes I do that. I'll be going to altitude, so the altitude is another component and factor that makes me more fatigued. So um, it just depends whether I'm at sea level. I tend to recover quicker at sea level, but if I'm at altitude, I find I'm just more tired in general because you're working harder. 
So if I'm at altitude, it probably takes me close to a month, but at sea level, it's maybe closer to like two or three weeks. Yeah, I, I moved to Denver a few years ago, and uh, even at just 5,200 feet, I noticed that the recovery just takes a little bit while longer at this altitude. Yes, for sure. And when you go to train at altitude, uh, what what uh, actual altitude are you going to? Um, it depends. Uh, like Flagstaff is right around 7,000 feet, but then when I go to, let's say, Mammoth or Park City, I'm living about uh, at 8,000 feet, so... Um, and I can notice a little bit of a difference in my recovery. My heart rate will be higher at night. Sleeping is a little bit more difficult sometimes um, at the higher elevations, but um, there's generally just an adaptation, and you just have to be kind of patient with it. With everything and running, I might add. Yep. <laughs> now, um, so when we met a couple years ago, um, you know, we had a really kind of small meeting with some, with some running uh, bloggers and, and coaches and other people. And uh, and I'll never forget how you described your racing mentality as cold execution. What does that mean to you? Um, I think sometimes, you know, uh, I personally can become very emotional when I race, which is a great trait, but also can be um, yield to bad results if you let the emotions get too much um, in your way of executing. So sometimes the four really emotional races, ones that I really deeply care about, um, you know, if I'm preparing to run the Olympic trials or the Olympics, Olympics, it's emotional because you're representing more than just yourself. You're representing your country and your family, and there's a lot of meaning behind it. And it's a great freedom. You know, we have such an advantage of, you know, the freedoms that we have, and so I just never want to take that for granted. So it can become a bit emotional. So I kind of use that mantra to kind of just keep me grounded and um, focus on what I need to do. And so I try to try to be a little bit more callous and have this uh, kind of poker face, and I call it cold execution because I need to execute. And then after the race, I can allow myself to be emotional. But <laughs> it's um, important over the course of a long race like the marathon to be very um, patient and to keep kind of the emotions close close to your chest um, as much as you can to execute a good race. Yeah, how do you get good at that? Do you practice that a certain way in training, or or how do you kind of approach that? Um, yeah, I mean, I just I I guess I in training will visualize how I'm going to react during the race, and to not get flustered and overwhelmed and um, too excited or too upset. Um, so I practice that in in my you know in my training sessions, and then hopefully that carries over to race day. Yeah, I think uh, I think any marathoner, whether you're an Olympian or someone way back in the pack, will know that you know this feeling of overwhelm or or getting kind of flustered late in a marathon, you know, mile 18 or 20 is kind of the classic point for most runners. Um, it happens for for a lot of people, and uh, I'm curious, Elaine, you know, do you have any cues that you use during racing to um, make sure that you maintain your focus and and stay tough when things start to uh, become really challenging? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just try to lock into people that are in front of me running and try to just say, okay, one more one more fluid station, you know, or five more minutes when things are tough. Like, just give me five more minutes of focus and attention and maybe I'll get through that rough patch. And generally that helps me if I just kind of break things down and compartmentalize and not get too ahead and be thinking of the finish and, um you know, I always try to tell myself, like, you don't want to be 
finish the race and feel like you didn't give everything that you have and be disappointed in yourself. So the feeling of disappointment is way worse than the temporary pain of the race. So I always try to remind myself that I don't want to finish and, and be disappointed. So I'll just try to compartmentalize, break it down into shorter little chunks and just stay with the pack as long as I can um, until, you know, if, if they've broken me. Um, and then then I break it down again just for myself while I'm running. That's good. It's it's very methodical. And it's, mm-hmm. I think a, a hallmark of your racing style with your mantra of cold execution is just very methodical. You're being strategic with how you're approaching things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you've, you've raced everything from, you know, the – 5K, and, you know, I know shorter than that earlier in your running career, but you've really focused on everything from 5K and now later up uh, in your career up to the marathon. What what single race or, or even distance now means the most to you? Um, well, I think I have the most unfinished business with the half marathon and the marathon. I still think I can run um, another PR in the half marathon. I ran one this summer just off of you know, base running, preparing for Rio and ran a PR, which is hard to do in a marathon build up to run a half marathon PR. And so um, I lopped off like almost, I think, close to two minutes on that. So it would be fun to bring that down again. So I think I have a lot more potential in the half marathon. And then I don't even think I've seen the best in my marathoning either. So, um, yeah, that gets me excited when I feel like I had, there's more to be done and there's more potential. Um, the reality is I'm 35 and most likely I won't ever PR in the 5K or the 10K again on the track. I may come really close, but I don't think I'll be lopping off, you know, big chunks of time. So I think as an athlete, what excites me is uh, improvement. I think we're all striving to improve at something. And so where I can see the biggest improvements would be in the longer distances. So that gets me the most excited is the longer stuff. Wait a minute. You chopped more than two minutes off your half marathon time off of marathon base training? Yes, this summer I did. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, that's, that's, that's super encouraging. Um, yeah, and I know, I mean, look, you've run uh, 221, I believe, in the marathon. And mm-hmm. uh, what was your, what is now your best half marathon time? It is 67. 50 something so I take that back it's only it's only like a minute off of my old PR so um yeah so 67.50 all right well I I think you still have a lot more more to go if you can do that and that's that's really encouraging and uh you know I think I probably speak for our listeners when when I say would love to see you keep racing and and doing really well in in the years to come um you know we can always look at Meb and, and say uh, you know, maybe in 2020 we'll we'll see you again at the Olympics. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, now, is yeah. there a particular race other other than a distance that uh, really captures your heart? I know that um, you know you, you've run so many. Is is there one that really stands out to you? Oh yeah, um, Boston always is probably the race that has captured my heart ever since I was a little girl and I look forward to watching and competing and probably the most so um, I feel like that's the last piece of the puzzle in my career that I'm really wanting to just really have a great run at Boston and be on the podium and be in the mix to win Um, so that for sure is still on my bucket list of trying to attain um, you know just a really great Boston performance. I ran 
probably one of my best races ever in 2014 and ran the American record on the course. And um, But unfortunately, that day, everyone came prepared to run really fast. And unfortunately, there was also two women who have been caught cheating since then. So my performance um, is a mixture of feelings. I'm so proud to have run so fast and tried to win, you know, in a really important boss in 2014 after the bombings was just a really um, important time for runners and important time for our nation. So I was really just very highly motivated to um, to just be an in- source of inspiration for our country and for the running community. And um, unfortunately, you know, I was in the mix with the, some women that were not playing by the rules and was quite unfair. So I feel um, saddened for that moment, that loss of that moment and opportunity, but at the end of the day, I know I ran as hard as I could and um, ran the fastest an American's ever run on that course. So I can at least, I guess, walk away with that. <laughs> yeah, and that was a special time for the Boston Marathon uh, with, you know, the bombings in 2013, and there were record numbers of people out on the course. Um, I, I ran Boston in 2014, too, and uh, it was it was like running through a scream tunnel, like the entire race, and it was just really... Uh, I think motivating and uplifting to, to, to be in that kind of environment uh, when just the year before the whole city was just shaken. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's talk about your book. I'm excited about your book. Um, you know, after, um, you know, you started working on the book, did, was there a shift in how you kind of personally tackled your nutrition as an athlete after starting um, working on Run Fast, Eat Slow? Yeah, so three years ago, the idea for this book was born over a dinner um, with Elise and I. You know, we she came, she just arrived back um, from living in Switzerland, and then she went to culinary school, went to the National Gourmet Institute in New York City, and she just come back, and we were eating this delicious dinner with our husbands and talking about what she had learned, and she was sharing some of the information with me and I, I stopped and I was like, Elise, this is mind blowing what you're telling me and um I'm like floored because what I had learned um was counterintuitive to what she was telling me. And I said, I need I need you to teach me like I I feel like a burden with my own diet and how I eat and um I always feel like I'm running running around and I'm always hungry. I'm never feel satiated and I always am like worrying about um uh, making sure I you know, um, as lean and mean as possible to do my job and attain the goals that I need to have while also being healthy. And so she and I, the idea to write a cookbook was born that night, and it took another year until we built up the courage to actually form a proposal and send off our idea to a variety of, um, you know, publishers. But we're really lucky to have landed Rodale because they're right in sync and in line with our vision and what we wanted to achieve with the book. So we feel really lucky that that happened. But um, I was basically her guinea pig, and I said, tell me how I need to eat. And uh, I kept a training a diary leading up to the Berlin Marathon with my foods that I was consuming, and we, we based a lot of the cookbook around some of the foods I was craving and what runners need and what they like and fitness enthusiasts need um, to stay nourished and satiated. And I... I don't want to say that, you know, running so well this summer, running two PRs on my way to my fourth Olympics at age 35, I I can't say it was 100% my diet. Obviously, I have to get out there and run and do the training. But 
I have really honestly never felt better. I recover better. I, I don't feel as burdened with my diet anymore. I used to feel like I had to count calories. Our cookbook is unique because we don't have um, calorie counts and we don't have the protein versus carbohydrates, all the comparison type stuff. We just provide great nourishing recipes and food that are tasty and delicious and crave-worthy. So um, I felt like my diet definitely changed drastically um, in the sense that I was incorporating more healthy fats into my diet, which I didn't know fat was is not only a great carrier of flavor, but it also helps you absorb the nutrients in your food. So I was incorporating uh, coconut butter, uh, good good local grass-fed, uh, you know, butter and great uh, healthy meats um, that were locally sourced. And so I was revamping my diet in a variety of ways, um, definitely supplementing. Um, if I was having any sweets, uh, sweet treats, I was making sure that they didn't, they're free of refined sugars and um, good whole wholesome flours. And so I was just feeling more satiated and feeling like I was recovering better um, by following this more whole foods approach diet. So it sounds like you you actually started eating a lot more fat, which I, I know is counterintuitive and, and just kind of different than a lot of the advice that, that we grew up on, which was, you know, low fat, high carb, um, but it, that, you know, like yeah. you said, you, you don't really feel satiated after that. You're you're hungry every hour and a half. Uh, yeah. How, how much better is your life now that you're not counting calories? Uh, you know, Elise said the only, you know, here's my best friend of 16 years, and, you know, I said, you know, tell me what to do. And she said, Chilling, the only thing, the only numbers that should be running through your head every day should be the splits on your watch and the number of miles you're running a week. She's like, do not pay attention to the calorie counts because then that means you're looking to packaged foods, and packaged foods have calorie counts. But eating an apple, there's no package on it that tells you how many calories are in an apple. And it's not important. What's important is the nutrients and the nutrition you're getting out of that apple. So that approach has just been like a huge burden lifted off of my shoulders. And it's such a better way, a healthier way to, um, you know, with enjoying food when you're not worried about that and you start to listen to your body. I think a lot of people become um, just not in tune with their body anymore and can't read signals of when they're hungry and not hungry and um, so this way, this approach, you just pick out foods that are locally sourced, they're vibrant, they're healthy, you feel better, and you're not doing these calorie counts and math in your head all day. <laughs> yeah, I can't agree more. I, I actually partnered with a registered dietitian to create a nutrition program for runners, and we interviewed Nancy Clark, who's, uh, you know, she consults with the Boston Celtics. Uh, her, um, you know, Athlete's Guide to Sports Nutrition, I think, is the number one best-selling nutrition book for athletes ever. Uh, mm. And I'll never forget something she told me. She said, uh, you don't need to count calories. The body is its own best calorie counter. And, you know, what's more succinct and prescient than that? Yep, exactly. Now, you Smart said woman. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you said you had a sweet tooth. Do you have any... Uh, sweets or snacks that are your kryptonite, what foods can't you say no to? Um, I am definitely a chocolate lover, so anything with um, with chocolate is for sure. But the good thing is is that if you get the right good chocolates, uh, you don't feel guilty about it. So so I love, I love sweet treats, and we have a wholesome treats chapter in the book, and not because Elise has a sweet tooth, it's because I do. 
And I think the harder I train, I definitely crave something sweet every single day. So, you know, we have um, some chocolate uh, macaroons in there. We have uh, frozen bananas dipped in chocolate. And we definitely have our share of sweet treats, but they're they're treats that you can feel good about. You don't, um, you know, we have these sweet potato breakfast cookies, and they're cookies, but you can literally, they're so healthy, you can eat them for breakfast too. I mean, they're made of oats and um, sweet potatoes, so you can't really feel guilty about that. <laughs> No, it sounds good. Uh, I'm really looking forward to lunch after our, our yeah. <laughs> now, uh, a lot of runners find it difficult to balance between, you know, the healthy whole foods that they need to feel great and fuel their running with their sweet tooth. How do you, have you found a simple way of managing your, your cravings for sweets with, on the other hand, the need to, to fuel really well for running? Yeah, I noticed that, um, you know, if I'm needing to cut back on sweets, say I'm getting really close to a, a big championship race, and I know I need to just put only really, really high-quality foods in my system, um, I end up just upping maybe a little bit more healthy fats in my diet because it'll help me feel satiated and make, make sure that I'm feeling full. I think sometimes when we get bored or we're not quite totally full off of the good healthy foods, we're reaching for um, the sweet treats and stuff like that. And I also noticed, you know, if you've been kind of on a, a binge of a lot of sugary stuff, there's definitely a time period in which you're going to have to wean yourself off because the body becomes addicted to sugar. So um, it's just like a slow process. And I always make sure a lot of people say this and not just me, but, you know, a lot of times the hunger is mistaken just for thirst. So I always make sure and try to make sure I'm doing a good job at rehydrating as well because sometimes I'll think, oh, I really want some chocolate. But in the end, I'm actually just really thirsty. So I'll make myself some tea or something like that. Um, and then if I still want the chocolate, then I'll have it. But um, it's definitely a fine line. You know, sometimes your body tells you what you need, and sometimes you got to listen to those cravings. But other times, you know, if you are got a big race coming up and you want to only put the best quality foods in there, um, I think the key is to just maybe up up the good healthy fats a little bit more and you'll feel full and more satiated. Yeah, more fat and water, less sweet. Yes. And, and, yep. and if, even when you are choosing sweets, if you're choosing, you know, whole food uh, yes. snack options, I, I think is, is a really good balance between, uh, you know, junk food and then something that's actually giving you a little bit of nutrition too while still yep. satisfying your sweet tooth. Yep. All right. Um, Chilean, what what's next for you? I've I've you know, in before our conversation, you know, I was researching a lot of things, um, you know, articles and you know, you've hinted at coaching, you've hinted at potentially uh tackling another book. What are what are some things that we can look forward to from you over the next year or two? Yeah, I still have unfinished business with um you know, I I'm definitely have this passion and this desire to win a major marathon. Um, I just, I think it's the last thing on my bucket list and obviously Boston would be so meaningful. So, you know, athletically I'm, I'm chasing a victory in, in the major marathon scene, but, um, I also would love to start a family. Um, I love kids and it's been so fun being a foster parent, but it always is fun to kind of dream of, um, seeing your own genetics at play and seeing, um, you know, having your own children. So that for sure is something that I desire within the next four years. And um, I've also been really fortunate to have built with Jerry, my coach, this amazing women's team here in Portland, the Bowerman Track Club. And we have eight amazing women and I have thoroughly enjoyed helping them, you know, start their careers and 
I I want to be a part of their careers. I get so much enjoyment seeing their success. I can I can say honestly that you know when I run a great race, that's it's a great feeling and it's it's awesome. But watching people you care about, um, people you're invested in, seeing them have success to me is even more enjoyable. And so I feel like that's a sign to me that I could absolutely one day um, switch roles and become a coach and have that desire to help other athletes and share the knowledge that I've kind of um, gathered over the last 16 years. So, uh, yeah, so coaching and then Elise and I are already dreaming of our next book and what path we want to take that. Um, There's a lot of different ways we could go and um, we've just been gathering ideas and, you know, already dreaming up new recipes. So, um, there's a lot that I'm really passionate and excited about, and I feel lucky because um, I, I think I'll always be a part of the sport. It's just whether it'll be in a different capacity. It may not just be me lacing it up. It may be helping other people lace it up, and helping people be the best athlete they can be because they're fueling and cooking well for themselves. Yeah, well, you have options, which is always <laughs> And you can go a lot of different directions. And, uh, you know, I, I'll just say as, as now now that I'm I'm coaching a lot more than I'm competing, too, uh, I, I absolutely feel that, too. I get more excited when one of my athletes has a great race or set the personal best than, you know, with one of my races. Uh, I, just, I just love kind of seeing that, uh, their progress and uh, seeing them improve as a runner. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do a quick lightning round. Uh, quick questions. You don't necessarily have to have quick answers, but um, let's get started. Your mm. Shalane, what's your best mile time? Mm, Four twenty-three, <laughs> I think. Four twenty-three. All right. Uh, red wine or white? Uh, red. That was a, that was a quick answer. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you have a favorite varietal? A favorite what? A varietal, a type of red wine? Oh, well, out here, um, Pinot Noirs are delicious out in Oregon, so we're famous for that. Um, So a good Pinot or a good Cab are probably my favorite. All right, yeah, that sounds good. And most number of miles you'll ever run in a week? Uh, Like 125. Yikes. (laughs) Ever thought about running an ultra? Yes. Uh, have you ever seriously thought about uh, tackling it maybe sometime in the future? <laughs> if it's a trail a trail ultra, yeah, I would love to do one. Like maybe if it's in Switzerland or something, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that sounds unbelievable. Now, what is yeah. it about trail – I'm sorry, what is it about ultras on the road that repels so many people? Because you were very quick to say it's got to be on the trail. And, it has uh, to be, yeah, able. you <laughs> – yeah, you have to have great scenery. That's that's a, a first and foremost. If you're going to be out there that long, you better be inspired by what you're surrounded by. Yeah, we we draw the line at road racing at 26.2, right? Yes. <laughs> All right, final question. You're out there running. You're wearing shorts. Short shorts or long shorts? <laughs> Short shorts, not long ones. Those are for dudes. <laughs> <laughs> great. All right, Shalane, there we have it. Uh, before we close, I just want to thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us today and talking to shop. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time, but, you know, maybe more importantly, I, I really respect your um, contributions to the sport. Uh, you know, you just posted recently on Instagram a picture of you with a hashtag uh, run clean, and you talked a little bit about that topic today, and uh, I, I think that's fantastic. And I'll never forget when we met, I was wearing a Just Say No to EPO 
T-shirt, and uh, <laughs> just, you you really like that. So your yeah. commitment to uh, a clean, fair sport has has a strong ripple effect, and uh, I think I speak for all of our listeners when um, we thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for acknowledging that. I appreciate it. All right, Shalane. Well, thank you so much, and um, we'll uh, hopefully look forward to having you on again in the future. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Okay, thanks for listening to episode three of the Strength Running Podcast with me, Jason Fitzgerald, and Shalane Flanagan. And thanks for your patience. I know the audio quality wasn't great on this episode. We had to record it using our iPhones rather than uh, any fancy mics using Skype. So I uh, appreciate your patience. We're going to be back to much more clear episodes in the future. Now, I have one quick ask for you today. We're right in the beginning of the podcast's life and getting any kind of rating, review, or subscribing to the show on iTunes is really important. And I want to be upfront. I want this podcast in the new and noteworthy section on iTunes. I don't know if we can do it, but how cool would it be if we can have a running podcast up on the top new and noteworthy list in the iTunes store. I just think that would be awesome. So I'll leave that up to you. If you're enjoying the show, give me a quick rating or review. If you want to subscribe, that would be great too. It means the world to me and is a lot more important than you think. All right, guys, we will talk on the next episode. <laughs>